I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. This morning, Acts chapter 15. And after just a little over a year, we finally come to the halfway point in the book of Acts. Chapter 15, right here in the center of the book. And really, Acts 15 is central to the book of Acts in more ways than one. Yeah, you know, you might say geographically it's located right in the middle. But the issues that Acts chapter 15 deal with are really, it really is a hinge upon which the entire book of Acts turns. There's a controversy that came about in the church in Acts chapter 15. And this controversy really extends through the remainder of the book of Acts. It really defines many of the issues that are dealt with in the rest of the book. And in, in many other passages in the New Testament. The, the controversy that arises here, and you may or may not be familiar with Acts 15, you will be in a, as we go through it here, but the controversy that arises is really, at its heart, a question of the true nature of the Gospel. What exactly is required for a man or a woman to become a Christian? Can anyone become a Christian who will trust in Christ by faith? Or are there some specific works that one must do in order to become a Christian? There are those today who teach that we must be baptized in order to become a part of the household of faith. There's others who teach that we must take communion in order to receive the gift of God's grace. There are even some who suggest that we must obey the Old Testament law in order to truly be saved. But which one is right? Now some of you may say, well, that's an easy question. I know the answer to that. Before we jump to a conclusion, I I want to caution you. Many churches have fallen into disarray over this issue. And I think it would behoove us to take time to study it carefully in light of the Word of God to make sure that we're following the teaching of God's Word. Begin with me, if you will. Just follow along. I'm going to begin. I'm just going to read a couple of verses this morning. Acts, uh, actually, Acts chapter 14. We're going to begin just reading verse 28 to kind of tie that last part in here. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 14. Luke tells us this. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren... And this is what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas had finished their missionary journey. At the end of chapter 14 and verse 28, we see that when they had finished their journey traveling throughout Cyprus and then into the region of Galatia, the southern, uh, the southern region of Galatia, uh, uh, Pisidia and Phrygia and the, uh, the areas around there, they returned back to the city of Antioch, to the church there in Antioch. And they, they stayed there, verse 28 says, for a long time with the disciples. And so there's a... I don't want to say a gap because Luke doesn't, you know, there's not a gap in the record here. But Luke tells us that there was a period of time that they were just there in Antioch, ministering with the church. 
Well, what went on during that period of time? Well, well, chapter 15, these first two verses give us some indication. We don't really know how long it was they stayed there, but it was while they were there in Antioch that Luke says that some men came from Jerusalem. And they came teaching a very specific doctrine. They came teaching that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised according to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. This issue began in Antioch to cause a controversy. We see here that that Paul and Barnabas, it says there was no small dissension and dispute. This was a very controversial issue as they began to teach this in Antioch. But here's the thing about controversy in general, and specifically this one. It doesn't usually stay put. And it didn't here either. Because the controversy that began in Antioch spread, and I believe, and I think we can defend this from Scripture, but it spread throughout the the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established in Cyprus and in southern Galatia. In those areas of ministry. They had established churches in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derbe. And these people who came to Antioch and began to teach this doctrine that Gentiles had to be circumcised and in order to be saved began to spread. And ultimately, I, what happened, and I believe, well, I'll try and explain this a little bit more here as we go, but during this time, while well, well, Paul and Barnabas are there in Antioch, the controversy arises, begins to spread, there's dispute, there's dissension. And so Paul, in an effort to head off the controversy and head off the conflict, wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to those churches in Galatia that he had started, that he and Barnabas had ministered to. The the churches with with the people there had been persecuted alongside Paul and Barnabas as they had been chased by the Jews from one city to the next. You remember the account of that in Acts 13 and 14. They wrote a letter to to the churches there in Galatia. We have that letter today. It's the epistle to the Galatians. And I believe Paul wrote that epistle While he was in Antioch, when this controversy erupted before he went down to Jerusalem, we see in in verse 2 of Acts 15 that they went down to Jerusalem. But I think before that happened, Paul wrote this letter because he was trying to resolve this issue and he wanted to strengthen the churches because he was concerned that this teaching, if it infiltrated the churches that he had started in Galatia, that it would disrupt them, that it would destroy them as it was causing conflict and disruption and dissension there in Antioch. And so if we look in the book of Galatians, we see some interesting things that Paul says. Because he actually, I believe, gives us some more details about what happened in Antioch. Keep your hand there in Acts 15. We're going to come back to that. But but turn to Galatians chapter 2. We certainly don't have time, uh, certainly not in one message for sure, to study the book of Galatians with any sort of accuracy or detail. But I do want to point out to you a passage here that's important. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, I, I believe these verses are referring to what happened there in Antioch while Paul and Barnabas were there with the church. Because notice what Paul says in verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. 
because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? You see, when, when Luke says back in Acts 15 that men from Jerusalem came to Antioch and, and began teaching the people that circumcision was necessary for salvation, I believe Peter was there. And he became afraid of what the Jews would think of him if he shared fellowship with those who were uncircumcised. So he separated himself from them. The problem was that all the rest of the Jewish Christians saw what Peter did. And they followed his lead in separating themselves from the Gentiles. Peter's refusal to eat with the Gentiles involved more than than just not going to their houses for dinner. You see, it, it included refusing to share in the Lord's Supper with those Christians who had not been circumcised. He refused to eat with them. This issue was literally dividing the church. And in one form or another, this issue, this controversy, still divides the church today. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to consider the response of the church to this issue. But today, I would like to take a closer look at the nature of the controversy in Paul's day, and in how this conflict continues today in the church. The question in Acts 15 centers on the role of circumcision in salvation. But that right there presents a problem for us. What does circumcision have to do with anything? First of all, it seems like maybe an odd topic of conversation in the church for us to discuss this. Why is this important? Why did it matter? What did it mean? What did it signify? Well, for that, we really have to look at the Old Testament. And I'll I'll refer to a couple of passages. You can look them up later. Uh, Do a little study in your own time. I heard a a preacher recently uh, tell his congregation uh, that that's your homework. Go home and study these passages out if you want. So there's your homework. But but if you want to look back at this, you can see it in its setting in, in, in the Old Testament. But in Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision to be a marker of one's inclusion in the covenant that God had made with him. God made his covenant with Abraham in in Genesis 12. And again, Genesis 15, it's spelled out more clearly and definitively. But it wasn't until Genesis 17 that God instructed Abraham that he and his children, his sons, and, and any of the male members of his household were to be circumcised. And God told Abraham, this is a sign for you. It's a marker. It indicates that you have been brought into this covenant that that God had made. In fact, God told Abraham there in Genesis 17 that any male child who was uncircumcised in his household had broken God's covenant and was to be cut off from the people. A very serious thing. And so the importance of this issue of circumcision in the Old Testament, is very high. 
And God says you're to be cut off. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, we, we, we see there that Moses received instructions there concerning the Passover. And what God said was interesting. He said that, that anyone who wanted to participate in the Passover had to be circumcised. Whether he was a Jew or a foreigner living with the Jews, if he wanted to become involved in that worship, in that, in that uh, particular festival or ceremony, he had to be circumcised. Now, again, what is that? Well, they became a mark, an identifying mark of a follower of God. This was a way that we could signify that people were followers of God. Using this external sign. Okay. But there's something more involved in circumcision than just the physical aspect of it. Just, you, you, if you have your Bible open to Galatians already, just turn over to Galatians 5. Paul tells us, in fact, what the greater significance of circumcision is. He says this, verse 3. Galatians chapter 5, he says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So what does Paul say? He says, if you take on this ritual that signifies in the Old Testament that you're a follower of God, that you enter into that covenant with God, Paul says, if you take that on, you also take on all of the requirements of the law. That anyone who would undergo circumcision was placing himself under an obligation to keep the entire law. This is why the issue became very controversial in Acts 15 in Antioch. Think about it. The teachers from Jerusalem who came to Antioch and began to teach in this Gentile church what they were really saying was you could not be saved unless you also committed to a lifetime of keeping the Old Testament law. The question then is really, what is the true nature of salvation? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ include a requirement to keep the law? Or can one become a child of God without being circumcised and without following all the commands of Moses? Now, if the Judaizers, that's what these people were called, if they are right, then Christianity is nothing more than a sect of Judaism. And we all must become functional Jews in order to have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And so this is a very serious and a very significant issue for us to consider. We read in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas responded with what I would call furious opposition to this false gospel. How Paul describes it in Galatians 2 and verse 17, Paul says this, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He makes it very clear. That keeping the law does not make you righteous. Instead, what he says is this. We have believed in Christ Jesus 
that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So guess what Paul says? If we preach the gospel of the Judaizers, we add works to faith and we say, listen, yes, you need to to come to Christ, but there's more. Yeah, you have to trust in Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the law. You also need to be baptized. You also need to take communion. You also need to become a member of the church or, or whatever it is. Then we're in error. Then we're teaching something that's contrary to the Scriptures. And yet, there are many today who do this. There are churches today. There are churches in this city today that teach that you must be baptized to be saved. And so what do they do? Well, they baptize infants. Because after all, you want your children to be saved, don't you? You don't want want to risk them, do you? You better get them baptized because you better protect them. But what is that doing? It's saying that, that salvation doesn't come by faith in Jesus Christ. It comes by doing this work. By going through this ritual. By doing the works of the law. And yet Paul says no flesh shall be justified. There are churches in this town that say you need to take part in the Lord's Supper. You need to confess your sins to other men. You need to give a tithe to the church. The simple truth is this. No one will ever be justified by the works of the law. And salvation can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ as the perfect and sinless Son of God who gave Himself to die in our place that He might redeem us from sin and reconcile us to God. None of our good works can possibly do what Christ has already done for us. But this is where it really becomes, really becomes sticky for us. You see, it's not enough for me just to say you can't get there by doing good works, even though that's true. I don't, it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what religious rituals you have taken part in. None of that matters. It is not enough. You cannot get there by doing those things. You cannot get yourself in a place where God looks on you with favor by doing those things or any others that I fail to mention. Nothing that we do. But here's the problem. Here's where we, may, we I want to... Here's where this gets even trickier. As long as you're trying to do those things, as long as you're continuing to to trust in your your baptism or communion or your church membership or your just goodness, your overall morality, whatever it is, as long as you're doing that, what you are saying to Christ is you died for nothing. You wasted it because I don't need it. That's an insult. I can't think of anything more insulting to the one who loved you, who died for you, than for you to look at him and say, you know what, that was nice and all, I appreciate it, it's a nice thought, 
But frankly, I don't need it. I'm good enough without it. And as long as you continue to pursue that, not only will you not earn his favor, you can't. Because you are actively engaged in an affront against him. Every moment that you're trusting in your own works, in your own goodness, in your own righteousness, you are throwing that in God's face and saying, I don't need it. I don't need your death. I don't need your grace. I don't need your love. I can do it on my own. And so the question that each of us needs to ask of ourselves Each of us needs to examine ourselves and ask this question, am I trusting in my good works? Am I trusting in my baptism? Am I trusting in my church membership or some other thing that I've done in order to overcome my sin? Because if you are, it's not enough. If you were here last Sunday, I wasn't here, but I know it was preached. I asked the preacher to give me his notes. (laughs) If you were here last Sunday, you heard the message very clearly preached from Ephesians chapter 2. That we're all dead in our sins. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but dead men can't bring themselves to life. They can't do it. Dead men can't raise themselves up. We're all dead in our sins. You see, instead of trying to work your way into God's favor, you need to realize that you're a sinner. And you can't save yourself. And you need to believe in Christ alone for grace and for mercy. But you might ask, what does this look like? What does it look like to stop trusting in myself, to stop trying to be good enough? What does it look like to trust in Christ alone? Well, let me try to illustrate this for you. There was a missionary in Africa. He was trying to translate the Gospel of John into the local dialect. He had great difficulty in doing so. The problem was there was one word that he just couldn't find a translation for. It was the word believe. He continued to do his best, but as he translated, he always just left a blank space when he came to that particular word. He didn't know what to do with it. But then one day, a runner came panting into the camp, having traveled a great distance with a very important message. He he blurted out his story, and then he fell completely exhausted into a nearby hammock. And as he lay there in the hammock, he muttered a brief phrase that seemed to express his, his great weariness as well as his contentment at finding such a delightful place of relaxation. The missionary had never heard the words that were spoken by this man before, and he asked the bystander, what did he say? And the man said, oh, he's saying, I'm at the end of myself, therefore I'm resting all of my weight here. The missionary exclaimed, that's it, praise God. That's the very expression I need for the word believe. What does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean to be saved by faith apart from works? Just this, that we come to the end of ourselves and we rest all of our weight on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
Have you come to this point yet? Have you reached the end of yourself? Where you're, you're moralizing and your you're self-justification, you're, you're trying to explain away your bad habits and, and trying to, to explain away your sin as if it's just, you know, it's just mistakes that you make or whatever. Have you gotten to the point where you're done? You've had enough trying to be good enough, trying to save yourself? And you're ready to fall back and just say, I'm done. I've come to the end of myself. I have nothing left. And I rest completely in the grace of God. That is what true salvation is all about. And can I, can I tell you this morning, if you've never come to that point, then He is not truly your Savior. And you are not truly a Christian. But there's more. There's more to this. There's more to the gospel than just our salvation by grace. You see, that's, that's if you will, just the starting point. That's just the beginning. Because that is the moment where we pass from death into life. But life must be lived. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ does more than just save us. It also provides the basis for our fellowship as Christians. You see, Paul and Barnabas were very concerned about this issue. What is the gospel? Is it, is it faith in Christ alone? Or is it faith plus something else? That concerned them because there were people who were lost in sin, who were dead in sin, who needed the gospel of Christ. But it also concerned them because they were believers who needed to share in fellowship one with another. And confusion over the gospel would prevent that from happening. We might ask a question this way. Are all who trust in Christ for salvation now on equal footing before him? Or are there different classes of Christians within the church? This issue is at the heart of the conflict in Galatians chapter 2 between Peter and Paul. When Peter came to Antioch, he mingled freely with the Gentile Christians in the church there. You remember the things that Peter had gone through. He was the one who had had the vision of the sheet coming down. And God had said to him, Peter, if I call it clean, don't you dare call it unclean. And then he had realized... Because Cornelius' men came to the house that, that very moment and called for him and he realized what God was saying was, Peter, it's okay for you to go to the Gentiles. It's okay for you to be with them, to fellowship with them. Peter, those things are clean now. You can do that. And so what did Peter do? He went to Antioch. He was there with Paul and Barnabas. And I imagine they were having a great time together. He was encouraged. He was preaching and teaching and building up the people. And what a wonderful thing it was. And, and there he is with all of these Gentile Christians. People that he had been raised to think were wicked and evil and pagan and vile and corrupt. And he's rubbing shoulders with them. He's, he's sharing meals with them. They're, they're participating in the Lord's Supper together. They're worshiping together. They're fellowshipping. And what a wonderful, blessed time. And all of a sudden, a group of men come from the Jerusalem church. Paul says in Galatians 2 that it was from James. I want to clarify so you don't get confused there. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. 
But as we will see later on in Acts 15, James, James was not the originator of this teaching. So James did not support their teaching, though they were from the church there, and maybe, maybe even men who were very close to James in the church. But we're told that when these men came from James to Antioch, that Peter separated himself from fellowship with the Gentile Christians. And you can imagine one day you walk into church and Peter sits down next to you in the pew and he puts his arm around you and he says, man, how you doing? How you doing? I've been, I've been praying for you. I've just, been, I've just been thinking about you a lot and praying for you. And I want to know, is there anything I can do for you to help? And he begins to tell you, I, you know, I remember one day when Jesus and I were walking down the road and he starts to, just starts to go in and tell you stories. Starts to encourage you. He just says, can I pray with you? Can I help you? And you can imagine how that would make you feel. This, this man who walked with Jesus, who knew Christ intimately, and here he is encouraging you and talking with you and sharing all this stuff. And then the very next day, you come into church, you sit down. And Peter walks in and he sees you there. And instead of sitting down next to you and putting his arm around you, he walks to the other side and he sits over on the other side. You might say to yourself, Peter, what I do? What did I do something wrong, Peter? Did I, did I say something? I mean, eh, you know, I, I don't want to offend anybody. Did I do anything wrong? He says, "No, no, no. You're just you're a Gentile. I'm a Jew." And there you go. You can imagine the pain and the injury that would cause the brokenness of relationships. Peter separated himself from these. Gentile Christians because they were not of the circumcision. Could you imagine sitting down in a service in which the Lord's Supper is being shared and you are a Gentile. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. You turned your back on on all of the pagan and wicked things that you were brought up in and, and you're just marveling in the wonderful grace that God would care enough about you to look down on you, a sinner who is deserving of nothing more than condemnation. And he looks at you and says, I love you. I gave my son for you. Will you trust me and be saved? And you do. And you're so excited and thrilled. And so you're there sharing and you're, 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 you're getting ready to, you know, to, to, to eat that bread, to drink of the cup and to remember the Lord's death. What a wonderful, glorious thing. And someone says, well, I won't. I'm not taking that as long as they're in here. I'm not going to share that with them. I'm not going to drink from the same cup they're drinking from. They're Gentiles. I'm not going to eat the bread that they're eating from. They're Gentiles. They're dirty. They're dogs. I can't eat with them. I won't. This is the kind of thing that was taking place. And Peter was right in the middle of it. Peter's example was influential. Paul says that there in Galatians 2 that the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch followed him. Even Barnabas. Even Barnabas. This is close, this close personal friend of the Apostle Paul with whom he had shared ministry. They'd been beaten together. They'd suffered together. They'd seen God do incredible things. They'd seen God save Gentiles. And then even Barnabas got caught up in it. Paul says. 
reverting to his Jewish roots and separating himself from his Gentile brothers. So here's a question for you this morning. Must we accept everyone who trusts in Christ by faith as a brother or sister in Christ? Certainly it might be tempting for us to say, you know, there's just some people I'd rather not. Maybe there's some I just wouldn't be that comfortable with. Maybe there's some that I just, I don't know, I just don't think I could get along with them. I just don't, you know, I have a hard time with them. I'm just not sure personality-wise we don't click. Or, you know, their background is so different from me. Or I just, I don't know if I really want to accept everyone that comes in these doors who says that they're a believer in Jesus Christ and loves him and wants to follow him. I'm not sure that I'm ready to do that. Well, I think this is exactly what Paul's talking about. There in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14, when he says to Peter, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter, if you have freedom to live in whatever way you choose, why are you trying to force the Gentiles to live according to your principles. What right do you have to add requirements to another person's faith? You know, if you look at the rest of this passage here, Paul goes on to say this type of attitude is setting aside the grace of God and is rebuilding that which was destroyed in Christ, namely the requirements of the law. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to take part in setting aside the grace of God, in rebuilding something that was destroyed in Christ. I don't want any part of that. But that's what Paul said was taking place here. If we refuse to share in fellowship with those who are in Christ as we are, we are denying the unity of the Spirit And we're bringing ourselves back under the condemnation of the law. I'm not saying that we would somehow be condemned and go to hell as believers. But we are willingly putting ourselves back under the law, which does what? It condemns. It proves us guilty. Because we fail every time we try to keep it. These are serious issues. They're serious issues within the church. Things we need to address. Things we need to understand. I'm trying to be thorough. I'm not trying to bring up controversy just for the sake of controversy. But I want you to understand what the Scripture teaches. I'm not saying here that we can't ever separate ourselves from anyone. The scripture is actually very clear on that topic, that we must separate ourselves. We must separate ourselves from those who claim to know Christ, but who live like an unbeliever. Many churches today don't do that. They refuse to practice discipline. When they have a member in the church who's living a worldly, unrepentant, sinful lifestyle and refuses to to confess and turn from their sins. The Bible says we should separate from them. 
We should separate from anyone who is divisive and who refuses to listen to biblical teaching. That was the instructions that Paul gave to Titus. To mark those who cause division and have nothing to do with them. But that is not what's in dispute here in Acts 15 or in Galatians 2. The Jews were not separating from Gentiles because they were walking in sin or because they were uh, causing dissension within the body. They were refusing to accept into the fellowship of Christ anyone whom they deemed unworthy according to their own tradition and prejudice. They were denying that the Gentiles could be truly saved because they didn't follow the traditions of the Jews. And this is where we need to be careful. That we don't allow our own traditions to become so deeply ingrained that we begin to judge others by our own standards. In fact, Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said this, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, listen to this, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now understand something here. There is a standard of judgment for Christians. There is. But you know what that standard is? It's not our standard. It's God's standard. He sets the standard for Christians, for His people. And so those who come to Christ in faith, trusting Him for salvation, receive the gift of God's grace, and each of us will stand before Him and be judged by His standard of righteousness. But here's the truth. Guess what? We've all already failed. We've all already failed to keep God's perfect standard of righteousness. And the problem with these Jews, these Jewish Christians were acting as if somehow they, they hadn't missed, they hadn't failed the standard. They kept it. And these Gentiles didn't. They were separating themselves. But they failed to recognize that they had, they had failed to keep God's standard just like the Gentiles. You see, in Christ, we all stand in the same grace. We don't stand in our own righteousness. And Paul says in Galatians 2 there, as he concludes his argument, and it's a familiar verse, he says, I, am, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on this passage, said it this way. This is the second time that Paul has spoken of the truth of the gospel. The good news that men and women do not become accepted by God because of anything they've done or can do, but solely on the basis of God's grace shown in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then listen to this. Moreover, on the basis of this death, all who believe become fully accepted by God and are accepted equally. Peter's conduct compromised this principle, for it implied that there could be superiority in some Christians based on race or traditions. Paul recognized that doctrinal division would result in physical separation 
But he also recognized that this was not a legitimate question of some disputed issue. This was a denial of the plain gospel truth. And so when the issue of separation comes up, can I tell you this? It is appropriate for us to separate over matters of truth. But it ought to be the truth which binds us together. Truth is divisive. It really is. Because truth divides what is right and what is wrong. You see, truth implies error exists, right? If there is a truth, then that means anything that denies that truth is error. And that divides. But if we would be committed to the truth, that same truth that divides would also bind us together. You see, in the early days of the church, their unity was maintained by a fierce commitment to the truth of Scripture. And I would suggest to you the only reason there's been such a splintering of the church in these past centuries is that there has been a failure to remain grounded to the truth. We have a responsibility to stand firmly on the truth of God's Word. We must not ignore the clear teaching of Scripture And we need to be perpetually vigilant that we do not stray from the truth. Because our unity as a body and our fellowship with one another depends on our commitment to biblical truth. As we consider those who share in the membership of this body, let us draw near to the truth so that we'll be drawn to one another. A.W. Tozer once said that it As a hundred pianos tuned to the same fork are tuned to each other, so we, if we're tuned to the same standard of truth, will be naturally tuned to one another. And so the gospel is both the means of our salvation and the basis of our fellowship as believers. These, this is what's at stake here in Acts chapter 15. This is why Paul and Barnabas responded so with so much fervor. What what must our response be? Well, to be honest, this morning I would suggest to you that your response and mine to to the passage we've looked at really shouldn't be all that different than what we ought to do every time we share in the Lord's Supper together. We must make sure that we're truly saved by faith in Christ alone. Any attempt to add works to the gospel results in no gospel at all. And we can't be saved if we do not come to Christ according to the clear teaching of Scripture. Not only that, but we must make sure that the gospel that we preach to others does not lay any additional burdens on them or else we are denying them the very grace that has saved us. I would suggest, not suggest, we must Repent of the pride which tells us that we are more deserving than others of God's salvation or that we are more qualified to judge others than God himself. This attitude will only lead to division and conflict within the body and it has no place here at all. We need to make sharing the Lord's Supper with the rest of this body a greater priority. Because to refuse it 
is to set aside the grace of God. And to neglect it is to say that fellowship with others for whom Christ died is really not all that important. Maybe you need to even consider joining this local church body this morning so that you can declare publicly that you share Christ with us. And you can truly fellowship with us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Whatever you need to do in response to the truth of the gospel, please do it today. Don't delay. Let's close with prayer.